The poet Elizabeth Bishop was a great transitional figure. She began writing poetry after the great poets of the modern period had accomplished much of their best work. The early years of this century, up till about 1940, saw one of the great flowerings of poetry in English. William Butler Yeats, William Carlos Williams, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, Robert Frost, Marianne Moore, were poets of an originality and power that was breathtaking. In the period after the Second World War, it was hard to know where to go with poetry. And it is in this sense that Elizabeth Bishop is such a remarkable poet. She, more than any other poet, more even than poets who at the time seemed to point in new directions like Theodore Rethke and Allen Ginsberg, she, more than anyone, pointed poetry towards where it might go and where, in fact, it would and did go. But we read poets not because they're important, but because they speak to us important things. Let me begin with a poem by Bishop called Filling Station. It's about the most ordinary of experiences. The poet drives into a gas station, probably in the 40s or 50s. It's uh, not a chain station. It has little to distinguish it. It's kind of dirty and oily. In fact, as I read the poem, you'll hear how often she talks about things that are oily or greasy or dirty. She notices it's a family-run filling station. And instead of just driving in, getting gassed up and driving away, she looks. At first, she rejects what she sees. It is all so dirty and greasy. But sight picks up on things that sometimes we do not expect. And that's the case in this poem. She notices that the service station is kind of comfy, as she calls it. She notices the things that make it comfortable and then wonders where they come from and what they portend. But before I talk too much, let me read the poem Filling Station by Elizabeth Bishop. Oh, but it is dirty, this little filling station, oil-soaked, oil-permeated to a disturbing overall black translucency. Be careful with that match. Father wears a dirty, oil-soaked monkey suit that cuts him under the arms, and several quick and saucy and greasy sons assist him. It's a family filling station, or quite thoroughly dirty. Do they live in the station? 
It has a cement porch behind the pumps, and on it a set of crushed and grease-impregnated wickerwork. On the wicker sofa, a dirty dog. Quite comfy. Some comic books provide the only note of color, of certain color. They lie upon a big, dim doily draping a tabaret, part of a set, beside a big hirsute begonia. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh why, the doily, embroidered in daisy stitch with marguerites, I think, and heavy with gray crochet? Somebody embroidered the doily. Somebody waters the plant, or oils it, maybe. Somebody arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, Esso, so, 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 to high-strung automobiles. Somebody loves us all. In the midst of this rejection of the world, this oily, dirty place. Her eyes, as I said, keep taking in what's before her, and she notices that everything is quite comfy. She looks at the comic books disparagingly, this is the poet, saying, is that all they read? And sees the comic books, and I quote the poem, lie upon a big dim doily draping a tabaret, tabaret is a round table, beside a big hirsute begonia. Hirsute means hairy. And now she inquires about what she sees. Where's the begonia come from? Where's the table come from? How did Doily get there? Somebody embroidered it. Who? Here's the poem. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh, why the doily? Embroidered in daisy stitch with marguerites, I think, and heavy with gray crochet. Everything is dirty here, even the crocheted marguerites, daisies, of this embroidery have gotten oil besmirched. And yet she realizes, having seen agency, having seen that somebody somehow has made this comfortable, an unseen presence, somebody embroidered the doily, somebody waters the plant, or oils it may be, somebody arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, so, 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 to high-strung automobiles, somebody loves us all. That somebody, that, that somebody is a human agent. And it is also, in some ways, a kind of divine principle. Somebody loves us all. Perhaps that last line is ironic, but there is a sense that in the midst of the dirt and disorderliness of daily life. Something is looking out for us. Something is making the world comfy, bringing beauty, one might even say, this embroidered, crocheted 
doily. Someone is bringing beauty into the world. Someone is taking the haphazard collection of oil cans and lining them up neatly so that they say the former name of Exxon was S-O, S-O, so, so, so. It deepens our appreciation of the poem if we understand that the childhood of Elizabeth Bishop was difficult. Her father died when she was an infant and her mother went insane when she was four years old and was institutionalized thereafter. This is a poem about looking carefully at the world, even at the dirtiest spots and noticing that maybe there is a caring and even maternal principle that can be discerned beneath or behind the ordinary and off-putting appearances of every day. This kind of careful looking is one of the great traits that Elizabeth Bishop brings to 20th century poetry. Here's a poem called Sandpiper. It's in five stanzas. It's about one of those spindly-legged birds that runs into the water as it retreats and pecks at little bits of plankton and then runs out of the water and up the sand when the wave comes in. She watches the bird. She sees it in the fourth line in a state of controlled panic, a student of Blake. That's because the poet William Blake wrote about seeing the world in a grain of sand. And as I read the poem, I'm going to stop midway through after three stanzas and point out something that happens in the fourth stanza that I find absolutely remarkable and almost unparalleled moment in the verbal texture of our world. One that's so remarkable that I think you'll want to pay attention to it also. So here are the first three stanzas of Elizabeth Bishop's Sandpiper. As the sandpiper runs in and out of the crashing waves or the residue of the waves. The roaring alongside he takes for granted and that every so often the world is bound to shake. He runs, he runs to the south, finical, awkward, in a state of controlled panic, a student of Blake. The beach hisses like fat. On his left, a sheet of interrupting water comes and goes and glazes over his dark and brittle feet. He runs, he runs straight through it, watching his toes, watching Rather, the spaces of sand between them where no detail too small the Atlantic drains rapidly backwards and downwards. As he runs, he stares at the dragging grains. Now I'm stopping here because something is happening in this poem that is astonishing. She's been describing the sandpiper who is finical, running in a world with large shakings and explosions because the bird is small and the waves are large, how the beach sounds as the water slides over the sand, it hisses like fat. She watches the bird looking straight down, watching 
here is how she describes it. He runs, he runs straight through it, watching his toes. Then there's a dash, watching, rather, the spaces of sand between them. What's happened here is that Elizabeth Bishop, instead of describing the bird as watching his toes, is trying to imagine what the bird is actually watching, and that is the sand between them, watching rather the spaces of sand between them where no detail too small, the Atlantic drains rapidly backwards and downwards. The world is seen in microcosm here, as Blake said, to see the world in a grain of sand. The Atlantic here is reduced to the water going up and down this little stretch of sand. As he runs, she writes, he stares at the dragging grains. You see what she's doing. She's watched the bird looking down at its feet and then saying, no, it's not the feet, it's between them. And then she looks at the sand and her vision has become so small. It has become as small as the bird. She can see each sand, each grain of sand turning over, moving with the water and yet dragging with the friction and the gravity that weighs on the grain. We're in a miniaturized world here. And then in the next stanza, having tried to see the world as the bird sees it, she now sees it literally as the bird sees it. This is what's so amazing. She becomes the bird. She sees the world through bird eyes. The world is a mist. And then the world is minute and vast and clear. The tide is higher or lower. He couldn't tell you which. His beak is focused. He is preoccupied, looking for something, something, something. Poor bird, he is obsessed. The millions of grains are black, white, tan, and gray, mixed with quartz grains, rose, and amethyst. Although Bishop is still observing the bird, she is also in these lines the bird itself. She has identified so strongly with the bird seeing that she sees the world as the bird sees it, staring at the dragging grains. The world is a mist, and then the world is minute and vast and clear. That is the, the bird which sees the spray envelop it, and then the spray settles. Uh, that vision is Bishop's vision. I know of no other moment in poetry when the poet becomes a natural creature like this. There are poets who have tried. W.S. Merwin tries to become a polar bear. Uh, other poets have tried to become animals, but this is effortless. She slides into the bird's seeing. The poem is a critique of the bird who only looks at small things, who can't see the large Atlantic. His beak is focused, she says. He is preoccupied, looking for something, something, something. He's caught up in something. Poor bird, she says. He is obsessed. In the same way, the poet is obsessed. As the bird is obsessed with the small and the minute in front of him, so she is obsessed with this bird in front of her. And there's a reward for the obsession. The bird sees not the whole world, but grains of sand. The millions of grains are black, white, tan, and gray. And then this wonderful concluding line, mixed with quartz grains, rose, 
and amethyst. By looking closely at the sand, the bird can see. The bird enables the poet to see the wonderful colors of red and purple, the minute crystals of gem-like appearance that are part of a beach which otherwise looks like whitish gray sand washed over occasionally by water. The poem, then, is a poem about seeing. The great novelist D.M. Forster wrote in his novel Howard's End that the problem of the world is to see life steadily and see it whole. This poem is not about seeing the whole, but about seeing the most minute parts, but looking closely at them. And it suggests, both in the line which tells us the Atlantic drains rapidly and backwards and downwards, that maybe by looking at a small part we can see the whole. And it suggests if we look at the smallest things, we might see a richness which otherwise would escape us. The millions of grains are black, white, tan and gray, mixed with quartz grains, rose and amethyst. Here is a third poem of Elizabeth Bishop's, also concerned with very, very careful seeing. But in this poem, she sees something that happened to her when she was very young. She is revisiting a memory, a memory that is so powerful that it still comes entire into her mind, even though it occurred three days before her seventh birthday. The setting is very important. Uh, it's The poem is called In the Waiting Room, and what it's a bit of a narrative, this memory. The young girl, who is the poet, goes with her aunt Consuelo. You recall I mentioned that her father died and her mother was institutionalized, so as a young girl, Elizabeth Bishop lived, lived with her relatives. Her aunt Consuelo goes to a dentist's office in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1918. She takes her niece with her and the niece sits in the waiting room. She's surrounded by adults, by grown-ups with their grown-up clothes. She begins to look at, around the room. She looks at a magazine. The magazine is one of those yellow striped covered National Geographics that probably all of us have seen at some time or another. She sees some explorers, a man and a woman, a strange baby, long pig, which is cannibalism. And especially she sees native women who, because they are native women and this is National Geographic, are portrayed as they really are, that is to say, without clothing on their top half. She sees their, their breasts. And this combination of the adult man and woman, of cannibalism, and especially of breasts and sexuality, this adult world suddenly comes rushing in on her. Let me read. I'll, I think you'll, you'll love this poem. in the waiting room. 
In Worcester, Massachusetts, I went with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist's appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter. It got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown-up people, arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines. My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time, and while I waited, I read the National Geographic. I could read and carefully studied the photographs. The inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Osa and Martin Johnson dressed in riding breeches, laced boots, and pith helmets. A dead man slung on a pole. Long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black, naked, women with necks wound round and round with wire like the necks of light bulbs. Their breaths were horrifying. I read it straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date. Suddenly, from inside came an oh of pain in Consuelo's voice, not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then, I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice in my mouth, without thinking at all. I was my foolish aunt. I, we were falling, falling our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 1918. Let me stop for a moment. Something amazing has happened to this young child. She sat there, she's looked at this magazine, she's heard a cry of pain, she said to herself, oh, it's Aunt Consuelo, it sounds just like her, she's foolish, she's timid, and then she realizes the cry of pain was hers, that she uttered it. And I think she realizes in this moment that she who will one day be a grown-up, she who will one day have breasts also, that she will one day also be not only a woman, but timid and foolish. And so she is stunned is too weak a word. She tries to hold on to her sense of herself in the face of, of the awareness of what life holds for her. She's seven, but she sees it all unfolding into the future. Back to the poem. I said to myself, three days and you'll be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold, blue-black space. But I felt... You are an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. I gave a sidelong glance. I couldn't look any higher. At shadowy gray knees, trousers and skirts and boots and different pairs of hands lying under the lamps. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened, that nothing stranger could ever happen. Why should I be my aunt? 
or me or anyone. What similarities, boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat, or even the National Geographic with those awful hanging breasts held us all together or made us all just one. How, I didn't know any word for it, how unlikely how had I come to be here like them and overhear a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse, but hadn't? The waiting room was bright and too hot. It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another and another. Then I was back in it. The war was on. Outside in Worcester, Massachusetts, were night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. a bum. She utters a cry of pain as she realizes that she too will be a grown-up and a woman. She tries to stop the sensation of vertigo, of falling off the world by saying, I'll be seven years old in three days. I was saying it the poem says, to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold blue-black space. And she names herself. But it doesn't help. You are an I, you are an Elizabeth, you are one of them. You're a person bound into the cycle of humanity, not only to other people, but into the cycle of growing up and older. Why should you be one too? poem gives no answer. She looks around the room. She sees she doesn't raise her eyes. She doesn't want to look at the National Geographic or see anybody looking at her. So she looks at their legs. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened, that, that nothing stranger could ever happen. This poem is, it seems to me, so faithful to childhood, to that sense that children have that it is mysterious to grow old and up and become an adult, that it is frightening and yet it is also a bond with other people. Why should I be my aunt, she asks, or me or anyone? Why can't I just float away? Why do I have to have an identity and a self and a body and... What similarities, boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat, or even the National Geographic and those awful hanging breasts held us all together or made us all just one. We're all humans. We all have names and bodies and boots and hands. We all grow up into sexual beings. How? She says, I didn't know any word for it. How unlikely is the best word she can use for the mysteriousness of human life and of human maturation. And precisely because she doesn't have a word, she can only say it's unlikely. It seems mysterious beyond the powers of language and explanation. How had I come to be here like them and overhear a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse but hadn't? The waiting room was bright and too hot. It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another and another. 
that sense of vertigo of falling off the turning world into cold blue black space overwhelms her here and then and then suddenly in memory as in life she is out of her fears and back into the world cold nighttime the world is comfortable and secure even though the first world war is on and it's got a date and a place even though the very ground of her being has been shattered by her realizing that she is going to grow up that she is human that she's connected to all human beings that all human things are a part of her so there's a comfort in these last lines as she escapes from that knowledge into a world at war. Then I was back in it. The war was on outside in Worcester, Massachusetts, where night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. I think we see in this poem two of the things that most distinguish Elizabeth Bishop and make her a poet of extraordinary power and importance. The first is her concentration, her ability to observe the moment. We saw that in the poem about the filling station and in the poem about the sandpiper at the shore. We see here, too, her ability to concentrate with incredible intensity on a moment in her childhood and to conjure it up with every detail intact. But we also see in this poem an exploration of the origins of the self, a kind of involvement with one's own subjectivity that would be one of the major roots, so broad and so far-reaching that it even became a superhighway, one of the major roots and superhighways down which poetry moved in the later 1960s, 70s, and 80s. This poem is helping to blaze the way to a new poetry of personal exploration. Observation and a willingness to seriously engage one's personal past. Those two things characterize, at their very best, the poems of Elizabeth Bishop.